From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. As the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin gets underway for the murder of George Floyd last May, efforts at police reform legislation are floundering, including here in the DMV. We speak to activist Jonathan Hutto. You know, we're not going to get serious police reform out of this legislative process, but we have to keep going back in order to hold these people accountable, but most importantly, uh, to maintain our stance in the streets. And young people suing the U.S. federal government for its role in climate change take their case to the Supreme Court. The crux of this case is that you can't have a country if you don't have breathable air and clean water and stable climate and an environment to support it and natural resources and everything that goes along with that. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital for March 12th, 2021. I'm Esther Averam. Well, starting the week of March 15th, President Biden and Vice President Harris will begin traveling the country to tout the benefits of their $1.9 trillion COVID relief package. Some highlights of the new law, which Biden signed on Thursday, including $1,400 direct payments, extended unemployment benefits until September, and a tax credit for families to offset the cost of childcare will provide at least some relief to Americans as more than a million people continue to make fresh claims for unemployment each week. But the specter of members of the Senate Millionaires Club, Democrats like Joe Manchin of West Virginia gleefully joining Republicans to deny even a gradual raise in the minimum wage, leaves a smelly stain on the whole process, especially since these same millionaires readily passed Trump's $1.5 trillion tax cut for the wealthy in 2017, which went into effect right away, and they blindly fork over nearly a trillion dollars each year to the military, which still has not passed an audit, as it builds trillion-dollar planes that can't fly and starts trillion-dollar wars that can't be won. Speaking of wars, March 8th is International Women's Day, and this year a variety of humanitarian groups mark the day by reminding us of the link between U.S. foreign policy and the scores of refugees on the southern U.S. border. Chantel James has more. This International Women's Day was commemorated by a forum on women's voices from Central America, hosted jointly by Migrant Roots Media, Pax Christi USA, and Friends of Latin America, featuring the first-person witness of women who have fled the violent impacts of U.S. imperialism on their home countries in Central America. The event outlined policies that have shaped the region and showed their concrete impact on people's lives. Carla Garcia of Honduras challenged propaganda and dominant narratives of the reasons why people come to the United States from the region, giving historical context for the kinds of military intervention on the part of the U.S. that created conditions women have needed to escape for their safety. The mainstream narrative often implies that the poverty and violence that trigger the migration of Central Americans are of their own making. 
Some argue that immigrants should stay in their own countries and work to resolve their problems. But this fails to recognize the role of U.S. intervention. From outright military aggression to trade agreements that attack small farmers, all of these forms of U.S. meddling have contributed to the northward flow of migrants. Nadie quiere salir de su país. Pero independientemente de si uno sale con documentos o sin documentos, cuando se sale del país es porque no se puede criar a la familia, no se puede tener en la parte económica ese sustento para poder el sacar el diario vivir o para poder proyectar la vida de su familia hacia el futuro. The U.S. government has repeatedly intervened in Central America to protect U.S. companies, starting in the early 1900s with the United Fruit Company, which was the largest landowner between Colombia and Mexico, and which violently quashed all banana workers' efforts to organize unions. U.S. Marines were called in whenever necessary. The forum used a variety of media to build community and spread awareness, including live music. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. In D.C., residents of the largest private affordable apartment complex lost their court case to block redevelopment of their community and what they fear will be their displacement. Lydia Curtis has the latest. On March 4th, the D.C. Court of Appeals affirmed a zoning commission decision that reduces the number of affordable housing units in the redevelopment plans of the Brookland Manor Apartments in Northeast Washington by 162 units. The court ruled against the Brookland Manor Tenant Association's legal appeal, but their fight against displacement is not over. The three-judge panel ruled that Brookland Manor's challenge to developer Mid-Cities planned unit development or PUD application was filed too late and should have been filed during stage one of the PUD process. Minnie Elliott, the president of the Brookland Manor Resident Association, who brought the lawsuit, recalled that during stage one, Mid-City was in a working relationship with the residents. It was not until later, when they reneged on the right to return agreements, that they decided to go to court. Attorney for Brookland Manor, Akila Crawford, told this reporter that Brookland Manor is the largest privately owned affordable housing complex in Washington, D.C., and the only private complex where 100% of the units are affordable. The approved PUD will take 162 of these units offline and convert 200 of the remaining 373 units to senior-only housing. Multi-generational families would be split up as younger people would not be allowed to live with their senior family members. Crawford went on to say, that D.C. City Council is supporting this redevelopment plan by giving Mid-City a $47 million subsidy. This subsidy flies in the face of the intention of the REACH Amendment of 2020 and the Council Office on Racial Equity, whose purpose is to create tools to dismantle institutional instructional racism. For On the Ground, this is Lydia Curtis. And finally, in culture and media, there are mobilizations across the United States and world 
to free journalist and political prisoner Mumia Abu-Jamal from prison in Pennsylvania, where he has contracted COVID-19 after already suffering from congestive heart failure and medical neglect. As we go to broadcast, the group Mobilization for Mumia is hosting a rally today virtually and in person at 11 a.m. Eastern Time at the office of Philadelphia District Attorney Larry Krasner. That's at 3 Penn Square in downtown Philadelphia. You can get more information at Mobilization for Mumia on Facebook and MobilizationforMumia.com. There are also updates on the case of another persecuted journalist that we are following. Thomas O'Rourke has more. The Biden administration last month filed its appeal against British Judge Vanessa Barritzer's January 4th decision to deny WikiLeaks publisher Julian Assange's extradition to the United States to face charges of espionage, computer crimes, and hacking. Assange's defense team has until March 29th to respond to the prosecution's appeal. Although the judge's ruling to deny extradition was grounded very narrowly, the combination of Assange's documented clinical depression and the widely reputed harshness and cruelty of American prisons with their widespread use of solitary confinement, Assange's defense team is considering cross-appealing several aspects of Judge Barritzer's decision. According to Assange campaign spokesperson and fiancé Stella Morris, the defense may appeal portions of the judge's ruling where she sided with the prosecution against Assange's politicization and press freedom arguments. Morris wrote, quote, We want a finding that the extradition is an attempt to criminalize journalism, not just in the U.S., but in the U.K. and the rest of the world as well, and that the decision to indict Julian was a political act, a violation of the treaty, a violation of his human rights, and an abuse of process, end quote. After the defense submits its appeal, the high court will decide whether to hear the appeal. If not, Assange would be released. Appeals from that point could drag on for several more years. This is Stella Morris on the Useful Idiots podcast a few days ago. I think a lot of people don't realize what Julian's really accused of and what the nature of the crime the U.S. is alleging. So he's accused of, of publishing basically information about Bush-era wars. Some of it goes into, like, it's up to 20, 2010, early 2010, actually. So it does go into the Obama era. WikiLeaks is really a product of the Bush wars, of the illegitimacy of those wars and, and the need to expose the normalization of torture of detainees and of entering into wars with lies. And so WikiLeaks was set up to address that. And so that's what he's being prosecuted over. Meanwhile, Assange continues to languish in the brutal, torturous conditions of lockdown Belmarsh Prison without being convicted of any crime and without bail for some two years now. For On the Ground, this is Thomas O'Rourke. And finally, in media news this week, a jury in Iowa acquitted Des Moines Register reporter Andrea Saori on charges related to her coverage of a Black Lives Matter protest in the Iowa Capitol last May. Though she identified herself as a working reporter, police assaulted, handcuffed her, and pepper sprayed her in the face. The Committee to Protect Journalists, Program Director Carlos Martinez de la Serna, said Wednesday, quote, The acquittal of journalist Andrea Saori in Iowa today is a welcome relief, but Polk County prosecutors should never have filed charges against her in the first place. Reporting is not a crime, and journalists should not be punished for doing their jobs 
and covering matters of public interest, end quote, he said. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. This is for the dumb. Mama took a knock, had to change the locks. Dusted up and brushed off, and I watched talk about a boss. For the holders of a shred of heart, even when you want to fall apart. When you're surrounded by the fog, treaded water in a ice cold dark. When they got you feeling like a box, running from another pack of dogs. With the pistol and the fist up in the air, we are dead, swear to God. Black child in America, the fact that I made this magic. Black and beautiful, the world broke my mama hard and she got an addict. God bless me to redeem her in my thoughts, words, and my actions. Satisfaction for the devil, goddammit, he'll never ever have it. This is for the do-gooders that the no-gooders use and then abuse. For the truth-tellers tied to the whipping post, left beat battle proof. For the ones whose body hung from a tree like a piece of strange fruit. Go hard, last word to the fast one was We have to continue to stay in the streets because we know that this is really where the power is. The power is among all of us. We represent a constituency that is marginalized. We represent a constituency that sadly but realistically represents the desperate, the damned, the disinherited, the disrespected, and the despised. Why do I say that? We gotta get the language right before we get started. Why do we say this? Because if that's not our constituency, we wouldn't have to be here. So who are we? We're the Maryland Coalition for Police Accountability and Justice. The Maryland Coalition, representing 90 plus organizations throughout the state of Maryland. Fighting for police accountability. Everyone get your hands up. These hands up represent. These hands up are symbolic and substantive of all the stolen lives throughout the state of Maryland, which is a microcosm, which is a microcosm of the stolen lives throughout this entire country. Every stolen life. Names known and names we don't know. We believe the killer cops have got to go. Killer cops have got to go. Killer cops have got to go. Should they stay? No. Should they stay? No. All right. Hell no. That's But we have to have laws in place. Let's give it up for Morales. As a black woman and an undocumented immigrant, my livelihood in this country is riddled with uncertainty. What's more, there are thousands of laws that have power over my livelihood, and I don't, I don't have a, I don't only fear deportation. I only fear for my life, the life of my brother, my mom's life. I fear for my community, and it seems like I never have a say or a voice on these matters. I have lived the past three years of my life in fear of speaking for what I believe because of the policies that these legislators have been implementing in the state of Maryland. My community lives in constant fear and harassment by police agents and by xenophobic entities such as ICE and CDP. 
as if that trauma wasn't enough, we are also being harassed and mistreated by police officers at a school. The space that is supposed to be safe for students. I find it very disturbing that students of color are being exposed to handcuffs and law enforcement policies at such an early age. And the poor policies that our school have making it easier for us to be kept in the hands of this system. These are issues that neither most of our legislators or their children have to deal with on a daily basis. They don't get paid $12 an hour. They are not the single undocumented black mother that is struggling to feed their children. They are not the parents of the black student that is now traumatized after being in, in, in handcuffs at a school for talking back to a teacher. They are not the family that just lost a child due to police brutality. They are not the family that has to choose between their health or their rent. And they definitely are not the people that go out every day questioning if they might come home to their family. It is a shame that you are even questioning something that is vital such as safety for our communities. And it is a shame that from your position of privilege and power, a lot of you hide under the color of your skin and now worry if your child is going to get shot today. I cannot stand this. We need them to understand that protection from police officers is at all times needed. Everywhere we go, we are in danger. We are in danger of the people that are supposed to protect us. We want civilian review board that can keep police accountable. We want to get rid of Leo Bar that gives police more rights than me. We need to pass Anton's law to get rid of abusive police officers and we want to ensure that there's real repair of Leo Bar and that legislators pass all of our policy bills without any amendments. No justice! No peace! No justice! No Students on the spot. I'd be remiss not to say that many of us started out as student organizers on campuses and in high schools. Give it up. Give it up like you really mean it. Awesome. No justice. No justice. No racist. No racist. No justice. No racist. I want us to say it loud because the person who's occupying that office over there, that mansion, also needs to hear what we're saying. So no justice. No justice. No racist. No racist. Defunda. Defunda. Sisters and brothers, family, my name is Gabriel Acevedo and I'm proud to represent District 39. And I'm also proud to stand with you all in this fight for justice, for accountability, and for a transformation in the way that we do public safety in this country. What we know is that the system of policing in America is rooted in white supremacy. So the systems that we see today are a manifestation of the white supremacist foundation that came out of slave patrols. Am I right? Am I right? Am I right? And what that means is that each and every one of us will have to demand that things change because power concedes nothing, and I mean nothing without a demand. Am I right? Am I right? Am I right? Sisters and brothers, family, are you all here to make a demand, not just for justice, not just for accountability, 
but to make sure that we make the families and the victims of police violence whole. Am I right? Am I right? Am I right? We are here to discuss a number of legislation. We all know what the Senate did with the police reform package. And while they brought it down and gutted certain pieces of legislation, I want to point out one in particular that each and every one of us should be paying attention to, and that is Anton's Law. Yeah. Say Anton's Law. Anton's Law. And it is named after Anton Black, a 19-year-old college athlete that was killed by police on the Eastern Shore. A young man who would be alive today with his daughter and finishing his education if it were not for an abusive cop and a corrupt police chief who decided to withhold the abusive record of someone who didn't deserve to be a law enforcement official no. at all. No. And so this young man is not here today because per usual, we don't listen to impacted communities. Because if we did, we wouldn't be hearing from mothers who've been struggling for 28 years to get justice for their children. 28 years. 28 years to get justice for their children. That's not democracy. That's not how government works. But it comes as no surprise because we know that government has never worked for black brown, indigenous, LGBTQ+, people with disabilities, and those exist on the margin. Am I right? Am I right? So that means that we need to bend government to our will. I will say that again. It means that we must bend government to our will. We cannot build trust between law enforcement and the broader communities that they serve if we do not have accountability. And we cannot have accountability without transparency, and that is what Anton's Law is about. It is about transparency. You see, you can hold us accountable for watering down bills and our positions on bills because you know what we're doing. But we don't know what law enforcement agencies are doing in our communities, and as a result, we can't hold them accountable. As a result, we don't have trust. And as a result, this racist system of policing continues to perpetuate, and the only people who are impacted are people that look like me. But that changed today. It changes today because we're not just going to get Anton's law passed on the House side. We're going to repeal the Law Enforcement Officer's Bill of Rights. We're going to pass a strong use of force. We're going to ensure independent prosecutions. We're going to ensure community oversight of police and sheriffs and every single law enforcement entity that patrols our streets. Am I right? Am I right? Am I right? For far too long, we have asked victims and their families to trek to Annapolis to share their trauma. To share their trauma. And we engage in pandering and performative wokeness. I will say that again, we engage in pandering and performative wokeness when we listen to these victims and families and we pass cosmetic legislation. But that ends today. Because sisters and brothers, we don't just intend on holding people accountable. We will change the very people who refuse to change the laws and continue to brutalize us. Am I right? Am I right? So we are here to stand in solidarity with the family. We're here to stand in solidarity 
with every victim of police violence alive right. and dead because we're here today because they cannot be. And so we have a responsibility to them and to the families to shake the very foundation of these buildings until we get what we want. Am I right? Am I right? Am I right? Let's focus on the house. Let's get things passed. And let's embrace the family and ensure that after today, families don't have to come back to Annapolis and share their trauma about something that we already know that this whole damn system is racist and corrupt. And the only way we change it it's not just by making demands, but changing the people in power who refuse to listen. We come here to Annapolis today to sound a final call to these legislators. That's what we're doing in the short term today in this legislative session. But what we're doing long term it's building our capacity, building our infrastructure, building our organization on the ground. Why? It's going to sadly be, sadly, not because we say it is, it's because what our system has proven itself to be, sadly, there will be more lives stolen, sadly. We have to prepare for a long, protracted struggle. It is a struggle for our very lives and our very existence as a humanity. And when we say struggle, we mean the basic qualification of life. That in the absence of it, there is no progress. What you're about to engage in is us pulling together as a state, as a nation, and a humanity in the spirit of Harambe. Let us all pull together. Extend that fist. When you extend that fist, you extending it in the memory, in the memory and the homage for every stolen life we've heard. All the lives we've heard and all the lives that we didn't hear throughout this country. We extend the fist for them. We extend it for the families, for the communities, for their friends, for those Everyone has been impacted. We extended for them. And when we bring the fist down, because when we say Harambe, let us all pull together. You're going to bring this fist down seven times. When we bring it down, we bring it down on all the racism, all the white supremacy. We're going to bring this fist down on every fascists alive in this country, those in uniform and those not in uniform, we're bringing the fist down. We're going to bring it down on all the cops arresting our young folks. We're going to bring it down on all the extrajudicial killings, the impunity, but we bring it back up. We bring it up for hope. We bring it up for justice. We bring it up for the liberation of our people for the liberation of all humanity. Y'all with me? Yeah. So on the count of red, black, and green, red for too much blood that has been shed. Black, symbolic of our people, too many of our people, disproportionately black, occupied, working class and marginalized in this country. Green, which is the symbol of the hope, which comes out of our struggle. We're gonna bring it out seven times. On the seventh time, you hope. And we're going to rock this thing. Y'all with me? We together? Yeah. Harambe, y'all with me? Yeah. 
on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm esther Ivarum, and you've been listening to our neighbors in maryland protesting at the state capitol in annapolis on march 4th after lawmakers there gutted key police reform legislation that advocates have been working for for years long before the murder of george floyd and after the death of freddie gray in baltimore in 2015 So now I'm joined by Jonathan Hutto, coordinator and organizer with the Prince George's County People's Coalition, who you heard lead that rally. The Prince George's County People's Coalition is one of 100 organizations that are part of the statewide Maryland Coalition for Justice and Police Accountability. Welcome to On the Ground, Jonathan. Thank you, Esther, for having us on. I appreciate you. I appreciate all you give and all you do. The appreciation is all ours for people like you and other activists on the ground doing the work. So the coalition has five demands to repeal the law enforcement officer's bill of rights, which creates all these barriers to prosecuting cops who kill or brutalize the, to limit the use of force by law enforcement to make investigations into police misconduct, transparent to remove police from schools and to restore control of the Baltimore City Police Department to Baltimore City residents. Right now, police in Maryland's most populous city and its most diverse city, we should say, are controlled by the state legislature, which is a relic of the Civil War. Now, of those five demands, I understand that there was success after months and years of clearly a broad coalition of citizens uh, working hard that maybe there was a victory on one or two of the demands in terms of the use of force and transparency. Can you just break it down for us? Well, again, Esther, thank you again for having us on the show. What has taken place, that rally was in response to what took place in the Maryland Senate. And we have to give a strong salute to that strong legislative warrior out of Baltimore, legislator, State Senator Jill Carter, who proposed the bill to repeal the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights in the Senate, which from our position as advocates and fighters is the codification of the Blue Wall of Silence. That bill would have totally eradicated a law, a draconian law, that was enacted in the early 1970s, 1974 to be exact, which gives police officers rights and privileges that go over and beyond those that enjoy by any uh, lay citizen in the state of Maryland, certainly anywhere in the United States. What took place in that committee, we're referring to the JPR committee, the Judicial Proceedings uh, Committee of the Senate, of which Jill Carter is a member. Uh, There were key Democrats in that committee carrying the water of the Fraternal Order Police, key among them, Senator Michael Jackson of District 27. They undermined the bill. They stripped it of a key provision which would have empowered uh, counties 
throughout the state of Maryland to enact independent civilian oversight of law enforcement uh, with full investigatory subpoena power. That bill was gutted. So even though the bill which came out of the Senate uh, proposed by Jill Carter says to repeal the law enforcement officer's bill of rights, we know that's not what it is. And our allies, our advocacy, organizational allies, among them the Maryland ACLU, and leaders of a beautiful struggle out of Baltimore have been providing key research and analysis of these bills. And so right now where we stand, uh, Esther, in terms of police reform from a legislative standpoint, is we're at a stalemate, to be honest with you. What is taking place uh, in Maryland uh, is a microcosm of what's taking place throughout the country. When we leave the streets and we allow those in the suites, if you will, to dictate uh, the agenda uh, and to dictate the trajectory of our movement. This is what happens. Our fundamental demands get crushed. They get marginalized. And so what you saw last week is us reaffirming that if we're not able to gain and obtain uh, serious police reform from the suites and the legislative halls, we're going to get it in the streets and we're going to continue to maintain our capacity to do so. So the fighters, we got to remain vigilant. You know, we're not going to get serious police reform out of this legislative process, but we have to keep going back in order to hold these people accountable, but most importantly, uh, to maintain our stance in the streets. Yeah, I I noticed the report in Maryland Matters. It was actually kind of uh, disturbing because they talked about Delegate Acevedo speaking up for the communities and talking about how true community oversight and control of the police was really taken out and substituted with citizen participation on some boards. And he also had the amendments that you were talking about. One sought to require the attorney general and Maryland state police to submit a report to the General Assembly about the extent of white nationalism in law enforcement agencies in the state. Another would have ended qualifying immunity for law enforcement, and a third would have removed police officers from public school campuses. So all of those amendments, as you said, were struck down. And I was particularly interested in the one about white nationalism in law enforcement, given the number of police officers, military ex-military veterans that participated in the January 6th insurrection. And a lot of the participants came from right here in our area. And so given the, the reporter's description of the disrespect that Acevedo was receiving there with people talking while he was speaking on his amendments, people laughing at him, it just really gave me a very raw feeling for the Maryland legislature and really how they are not taking seriously the threat of violent police. Your analysis is spot on. That situation you described with Delegate Acevedo is, is on point in terms of, when I say on point, meaning on point in terms of what actually took place. You know, here's a delegate who is directly connected to the mass movement, was at our rally on last week, spoke at our rally on last week, and has carried the demands and the plank of the movement within the legislative halls. But what you have described is where the delegates, but also the House leadership, where they are aligned. They're not aligned with us. They're not aligned with 
the Maryland Coalition for Police Accountability and Justice, over 90-plus organizations throughout the state of Maryland. They're not aligned with the ACLU. They're not aligned with Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle, SCLC, NAACP. They're not even aligned with traditional civil rights organizations. They are aligned with the Fraternal Order of Police, the FOP. This is an organization that endorsed Donald Trump for president twice. You know, this is an organization that provides legal defense for those officers who are what we know as killer cops. You know, that officer, Derek Chauvin, is being defended by the Fraternal Order Police. So, and I'm just using that as an example of far too many throughout this country. And sadly, we're talking about a state that legislatively is dominated by the Democratic Party. This is the, the discussion, the tension, and the battle that we have to have as advocates within our own movement to break the chains of what uh, liberalism has done to our minds, you know, in terms of of what we define as winning. That process from what we have seen and what we have experienced is a process that is not working for us. We're going to have to go another way. And, and that debate and that struggle uh, is ongoing. You know, I mentioned earlier in the show the the start of the trial of Derek Chauvin in Minneapolis for the murder of George Floyd. And something I think you said at the rally kind of struck with me because after going through this process, you were uh, evoking the spirit of Fred Hampton, who is on the mind of many people these days because of the movie Judas and the Black Messiah, basically saying that the the process is an education for the people. So I wanted you to, to maybe expand on that. Absolutely. Uh, what I was stating there, one of the uh, victims that Fred Hampton said ad nauseum was that the people learn best by observation and participation. That what has taken place at the Maryland General Assembly is a deeper political uh, training than any political science course, any civics course in this country. And connecting that piece that Fred will say ad nauseum to page 25, the bottom of page 25, is George Jackson's Blood in My Eye, his political treatise, where he states that Lenin, Guevara, all of them, meaning revolutionaries that he admired and certainly we admire, they all postulate that before a revolution can seriously take hold amongst the masses of the people, that all forms of redress has to clearly have broken down in the minds of the masses any notion that the old system can actually work to repair the damage and to uplift the needs of the masses of the people has to clearly have broken down. So when people talk about transforming society, you cannot really transform society if we don't break down the people's mind that the present system doesn't work. And that is a practical process. We've got to take people to Annapolis we got to have them knock on them doors, talk to these legislators, see if they actually work for you, vote for them. It's a process, observation and participation. And as Kwame Therese taught us, that the struggle is eternal, that there is no easy victory. So in that process, in that trajectory, we learn along the way, we hone skills, we hone knowledge. And if we're being honest, if we're struggling to be honest, we got to tell the truth. We tell the truth. We smash a million lives. We have to tell the truth about this process. And right now, in the state of Maryland, throughout the country, this legislative process is not working for us. We must go another way. Oh, so if people want to 
get involved if they want to you know join the coalition their organization or as an individual how do they do that well the prince george's county people's coalition you can find us on facebook search us find us there's a website for the maryland coalition for police accountability and justice of which the people's coalition is a member of 90 plus organizations and that website is mcjpa mcjpa.org for the Maryland Coalition for Justice and Police Accountability. Thank you, Jonathan Hutto, coordinator and organizer with the Prince George's County People's Coalition, which is a part of the statewide Maryland Coalition for Justice and Police Accountability. Thank you so much, Esther. On the move. On when it falls. <laughs> okay. This is Linda Shade for Pacifica Radio and On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. In 2015, a diverse group of 21 young people filed a landmark climate lawsuit, Juliana versus the United States. In the case, youth are making the argument that the U.S. government is actively violating their rights to a habitable planet. The youth plaintiffs are demanding a science-based response to the climate catastrophe unfolding in communities and states across the country. Today, we are reporting on a recent ruling in the case and talking to Jacob LaBelle, one of the plaintiffs, now 23, and to Phil Gregory, lead attorney representing the case. Phil, give us an overview. What are the issues at stake? Thanks, Linda, so much, and thanks for having uh, Jacob and I on this. Well, quickly, Juliana is the youth constitutional climate crisis case where, as you earlier observed, 21 young plaintiffs from around the U.S. are suing the federal government for the federal government's affirmative acts in essentially causing and perpetuating a national fossil fuel-based energy system. So now... We are gearing up to file a petition with the United States Supreme Court. And what we're going to state in the petition is that the decision that federal courts can do nothing about an injury inflicted on U.S. citizens by the federal government is against all the prior decisions of the United States Supreme Court. That federal courts can issue what's called declaratory relief or declare that there's been a constitutional violation. That goes back to cases like Marbury versus Madison in 1803, or it goes back to Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. And that what's called partial redressability, the ability of courts to 
issue a decision that stops some of the problems uh, causing the climate crisis by stopping conduct of the federal government is enough. And finally, we genuinely believe that the court could order the federal government to prepare a government-wide remedial plan, or, or we'll call it a climate recovery plan, uh, to redress the systemic violations of the use constitutional rights. And in fact, that's exactly what uh, President Biden just ordered, a government-wide plan in his recent climate crisis uh, executive orders. So it can be done, an executive order just issued to that effect. So we're very hopeful that the United States Supreme Court will take up this case and find that America's children have access to the courts when their constitutional rights have been violated. Right. Jacob, did you want to weigh in there? I think Phil explained it beautifully, um, you know, in, in a condensed form. Obviously, we've been going through it. I think it's been the, it's the sixth year we filed in August of 2015. I was 18, just turned 24. So, you know, obviously there's a lot that went on there, both throughout the Trump administration and now into the new Biden administration. One thing I think that Phil didn't touch on is that we're also asking and hoping that the new administration, the Joe Biden administration, will come to the settlement table with us, with the plaintiffs, so that we can craft a settlement agreement. There's a couple of different ways to do that under um, court decrees where we will kind of agree to something and the court will put its stamp on it and then it, it will be a lasting settlement that won't be subject to the whims of changing political administration. It would be something that the U.S. government, the office of the president, has agreed to with us, the plaintiffs, and it will carry on throughout future administrations if that is done. You know, such a settlement would potentially help Biden in his stated goals of addressing climate change and transforming our energy system and addressing all the, uh, the harms that climate change is causing our nation and our nation's citizens. And it would go hand in hand with those goals and it would make it so that whatever policies that we are or whatever uh, outlines that we agree on in that settlement would carry on into future administrations. So I think that's uh, also an important point of where we're at is we're appealing to the Supreme Court. And in the meantime, we're also asking the Biden administration to come for settlement. Yeah, I do feel like I ran ahead of you guys because I was going to start and I was going to ask you, Phil, I saw that the judges had ruled, so pardon me for stepping back a bit just so our listeners can sort of, you know, get a little bit more detail. So I was going to ask you, Phil, you know, what do you say to the judges finding that the scope of remedy is so large and that, you know, given the significant restructuring of the energy grid and the economy, that Congress, rather than the courts, is the most appropriate forum? And so I wanted to pass that back to you and, and let you speak to that a bit more. Sure, Linda. And the first point to make is that, as we all know, the climate crisis is 
systemic. It's a system, energy system-wide problem. And we're not talking about trying to save one polar bear at a time, or we're not trying to talk about shutting down one coal-fired power plant at a time. We've got to deal with a system. And the closest analogy I think of when I consider the climate crisis is segregation. It was a systemic problem that permeated schools, it permeated transportation, it permeated every aspect of people's lives. And through the Supreme Court's decision in Brown versus Board of Education, sending the message that separate but equal was no longer constitutional, the Supreme Court led from the front. So now let's talk about the climate crisis. We all know that this Congress is not going to pass any major climate legislation in the next couple of years, given what's going on in the Senate in particular. So Congress is leading from behind. And it's what we really believe is that the United States Supreme Court needs to allow Juliana to go to trial so that the evidence of the government's decades-long decision to destroy the climate for the youngest generation, for Jacob's generation, for the generation of my granddaughter Alice and my grandson Lincoln, they made a conscious decision that they were going to keep their foot on the fossil fuel accelerator even though all the federal scientists were telling them that it would essentially destroy our nation as we knew it. So for the majority opinion in, of the Ninth Circuit to say to these young plaintiffs, oh, you go make a change at the ballot box when most of them can't vote, or you and them try to make a change in Congress and the executive branch when they've been the problems all along without having a judicial declaration of the constitutional right and the unconstitutional conduct, to me, it's, it's leading from behind. It's not courageous. And our courts need to be courageous. They've been that way in the past. And they can keep being that way. They don't have to hide when we're in a moment of crisis like we are right now. Right. And so what do you say to those who are concerned about the risk involved in bringing the case to the Supreme Court, given its current configuration? Well, I believe this United States Supreme Court is wholly in favor of a case like Juliana where the evidence is clear that the mm-hmm. federal government is harming U.S. citizens. I mean, you have to understand, even the Trump administration admitted for purposes of trial that the science is that the federal government's conduct, for example, leasing fossil fuel rights on federal lands, that right. conduct is causing harm 
to U.S. citizens. And I don't believe that even this court will tolerate the federal government harming U.S. citizens and say, well, the courts can do nothing about it. That simply is not how our Constitution was framed. That was not the position of our founders. In fact, the Declaration of Independence and the war of uh, the American Revolution were founded on the principle that George III and the English government were harming then British citizens in the American colonies, and it was up to the citizens or in the colonies to take matters in their own hands and issue the Declaration of Independence simply because they were being harmed and they were being ignored, just like these young plaintiffs in Juliana. Right. Okay, well, Jacob, now let me give you a chance to introduce yourself. As you were saying, you were 18 when you joined the lawsuit. Why did you originally decide to get involved in this case? Yeah, for sure. Well, it all started, I think, when the Jordan Cove project, back then under the control of a Canadian corporation called Verison, was planning to build a natural gas pipeline 32 inches across, basically not quite in our backyard, but just in the back of our farm property. So for a little bit of background, I moved from Quebec, Canada with my parents when I was immigrated to the United States when I was four years old and became a U.S. citizen. And the reason that we moved to the United States was actually mainly to um, start a farm and be self-sustainable and kind of live in accordance with our values. And the best place to do that that we found was this little spot near Roseburg, Oregon, where there was a mild climate. It was the ideal place to grow food and start a farm. And so uh, when this company came in to build this natural gas project, I became um, very active against it. There were multiple problems with it, including it would be have been Oregon's highest uh, emitter of fossil fuel emissions, would cross all our major rivers. There was a lot of risk during wildfire season of um, explosions or burning debris impacting the pipe. So there was many, many bad things about it. But through that activism, I met one of the plaintiffs that was already kind of part of the pre, just before we filed, you know, they were kind of gathering plaintiffs, our children's trust was gathering plaintiffs, and plaintiffs were coming together, and one of them called Alex um, contacted me, heard about me through our shared activism and stopping this pipeline, and contacted me about being a part of this case, and so it started with kind of a very uh, local, close-to-home fight and became something much, much bigger, I think much bigger than, than I um, could have ever known when I first joined. So it has been quite a journey, and it's still, it still is in many ways. You know, it's kind of uh, amazing that we're at the point where we still haven't had trial, amazing and not a good way, <laughs> that we still haven't been able to have a full and fair trial before the American people and that we're having to appeal all the way to the Supreme Court 
But at the same time, you know, with with this new administration, we see some hope potentially and and also hope um, that the Supreme Court, like Phil said, will recognize that the current ruling that we had that was a, a two to one ruling against us at the appeals court. Um, is really bad <laughs> and is, is just yeah. sets really bad legal precedent. And so we're, we're really hoping as well that the Supreme Court will recognize that this is not just about our case, but also about legal precedent for many other cases. And so they will allow us to go to trial. That's really our goal. Yeah. Well, I did want to sort of ask you, was there some moment, some powerful experience that you've had being part of this fighting for your generation's future, uh, you know, that you wanted to share sort of along this path? Mm. Well, there have been so many, but I think, you know, every time that we're in a courthouse before a federal judge, whether that's the district court in Eugene, Oregon, or the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal in San Francisco, or in Portland, you know, at all of these hearings, it's always a very powerful moment. You kind of see our system, our democracy kind of firsthand in action and kind of you really feel like you're a real part of it and you can feel and judge for yourself, you know, its failings and also what it does right and kind of the whole history that's behind our system. And you can kind of get a firsthand view, and it's, and it's very powerful, I think, especially as young people that were able to do this. And it's unfortunate that it's necessary that, for example, Levi was, I think, eight years old when we first filed the case, and his uh, home is on a barrier island in Florida, and it's projected to be underwater within, I think, the next 30 to 40 years because of climate change. And so, um, you know, these very real issues and these very young plaintiffs in many cases sitting in those courts before our nation's judges and before, you know, in many cases, the media and the general American public and kind of making that case. And so I think, you know, that every time we're in court has just been kind of a flashpoint for me. And we're also all together, you know, usually all 21 of us are almost. And it's, um, it's always, you know, a very special time to be able to see each other. Well, I can just imagine that judges would be really, you know, morally uh, feel like they're, you know, on the hot seat when they've got young people looking them in the face, you know, and that always and seems that to be is, a very powerful aspect. Yes, and that, that is, you know, the crux of her case, you know, that is the whole point, you know, beyond the legality and the constitutional arguments and everything that uh, we just talked about. Law, human law is based on our moral principles, right? You go talk to a, <laughs> talk to I don't know a fox in the woods. They won't they won't understand what what our law is about per se, but it reflects our or it should reflect our most deeply held human values that inform our society. And so you know cases like this are fundamentally about moral values. And and for me, what could be more important than you know the vi- the viability and the thriving of our common home, of literally the very environment that sustains us. You know, the the crux of this case is that you can't have a country if you don't have breathable air and clean water and a stable climate and an environment to support it and natural resources and everything that goes along with that. And And so, you know, this is very literally, you know, one of the most important moral arguments that we're having right now. And frankly, we've, we're far too late. So it's, it's kind of a very urgent case for us in many ways. I, I 
couldn't think of something more important that I'd want to be involved with. Okay. Any final comments from Phil or Jacob? I just want to say that the Biden-Harris administration essentially has three options. Option one is to do exactly what the Trump administration did, and that is fight these kids and deny the federal government has responsibility for the climate crisis and deny that the federal government can do anything about the climate crisis. That's option one. Option two is it can change the Trump administration's position on the viability of the remedies or the ability of the court to issue remedies in Juliana. Or option three is come to the settlement table. So Juliana poses a test for this new administration, given the president's campaign pledge to strategically support ongoing plaintiff-driven climate litigation and his promise to create a new environmental and climate justice division within the Justice Department. So it's up to this administration to essentially sit down and decide which of those three options it's going to pursue. And I hope it's one of the options that affirms the rights of children, affirms the ability of courts to deal with remedies, and uh, rejects the scorched earth policies of the Trump administration. Excellent. Well, thanks so much uh, to both of you, to lead attorney Phil Gregory in the Giuliani case and to climate activist Jacob Lovell about this groundbreaking climate litigation that's now headed to the Supreme Court. This has been Linda Shade for On the Ground, Voices of Resistance for the Nation's Capital. And thank you to Linda, Shade, Chantel James, Lydia Curtis, Thomas O'Rourke for their contributions to the show today. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. And that will do it for today. You can check out all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us and support us there as well. You can also let us know you like the show at On the Ground Show on Facebook, Twitter, or on Patreon.com at On the Ground Show. Our new podcast, On the Ground with Esther Averam, that's On the Ground W. Esther Averam is available on all your podcast platforms. Our new podcast, our social media pages, and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. Thank you to all those checking out the podcast and giving us a nice rating. The music we played this hour included A Few Words for the Firing Squad by Run the Jewels, A Piece of Empire State of Mind by Jay-Z featuring Alicia Keys, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. 
And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end of the year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.